Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted first and foremost to be joined on today's programme by Jeanette Preston. Jeanette is the founder and voluntary CEO of Pants Cancers, a community interest company and charity based in Falmouth, Cornwall. Um, Jeanette, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for joining us today. Thank you Scott, my pleasure to be here. It's a real pleasure having you join us as well, uh, Jeanette. And uh, just to kick things off, um, considering that we are going through one of the greatest challenges of our time, I think it's fair to say, certainly from a leadership perspective in the shape of COVID-19, I feel it would be remiss of me not to ask you just to what extent the pandemic has affected you and your operations as a charitable concern. Well, COVID-19 has meant we went into lockdown not expecting to survive. It's been a nightmare time, to be honest, uh, and a great worry throughout the whole time of lockdown um, when we really, really didn't think we were going to come out of it. But, of course, we got grants from the government via the local council and were very pleased to get them, and that enabled us to pay rents and all the other things that we, we had to pay. Without that, we would definitely have sunk. And um, with regard to the government's leadership through the uh, the pandemic so far, of course, they've made the uh, the furlough scheme accessible for a number of uh, business concerns all over the uh, the country. There's been, of course, loan schemes coming in as well. I suppose that you may have taken um, use of some of those schemes yourself just to keep things ticking over over the last few months as well. Definitely. We've used the furlough um, and furloughed all our staff. And truly, we couldn't have survived without that. Um, it's been, you know, an amazing opportunity to welcome the staff back again. Um, but out of it, just to, to say, um, it's been such a fascinating time because we have actually lost a couple of staff members, but we've gained staff members from people who've been furloughed from other jobs. Mm. And, in, and this has included um, a particular um, fun find, really, is, is uh, Sheena, who's, who's now become a manager in our shop and wants to come and work with us permanently because she loves it so much. But we've also got um, a a dental surgeon um, called Kumar who is waiting to sit his final exams uh, to be able to practice in this country. But it's all been on hold because of COVID. But he's working for us, so we actually can proudly announce we've got a dental surgeon on the team as well. Mm, So there has been some silver lining to the uh, the situation um, as well then and um, I think a lot of people are trying to find the silver lining in the dark cloud of COVID-19 in the sense that if we call this an experience of crisis management it's taught them an awful lot not just about their own resilience but also that of the people around them too. Indeed I mean you know I, I've although I expected not to survive lockdown there was something always that made me feel that we would Ever since I started it, and as you've already mentioned, I started it myself, um, but it was 13 years ago after I had womb cancer. Mm. And I am a woman of faith, and I knew that it was not particularly my choice whether I survived or not, that it was not in my hands. It was down to the wonderful surgeons. And um, it, it's always been with me, a, a faith and a belief that we would survive anything. And here we are, 13 well, almost 13 years since I've been working on, on it all, um, we're still here. And I don't, although I really, really worried during lockdown, I always expected that we'd come out of it, even if it was in a smaller format. At the moment, we've um, we've got three shops in Salma, three charity shops, and from those, we fund our cancer rehab programme, which is an amazing programme that helps so many people with area cancers. Steve Winnan, who manages it, uh, helps at least 50 people a week and we want in future to take this program around the whole of the county to people in socially isolated rural situations mm. um, but that's going to mean we're going to need a lot of help i um have always needed help with everything that i've done through through pants and um fortunately lots of times people have turned up and i'm hoping that we'll get somebody who's got the drive and the ambition and the leadership skills that i lack to actually take us on to being able to deliver this excellent programme 
that we're doing only in Penryn near Falmouth at the moment, mm. but recognise that it would be valued and, and wanted all across the county. And I suppose as well, the social isolation side of lockdown has only fuelled the issue that there is a significant lack of awareness of cancers like this, isn't there? And that was the whole reason that pants cancers came about in the first place, to try and combat that. It was. I mean, at the very beginning, I was just so annoyed that nobody ever talked about my type of cancer, which is womb cancer. And I do think that we're actually the Cinderella service of of the whole organisation of cancers in in that um, pants area cancers are never publicised, apart from cervical cancer sometimes. But the side effects are so horrendous. And it's awful to think that um, they're never making the, the top headlines in the media or anywhere else. But the misery that people actually cope with when they've got prostate cancer, testicular cancer, vulval cancer, oral cancers, usually um, all of these cancers are related to the human papillomavirus. And we really would love some kind of publicity to bring this into the forefront of people's minds because they really don't know about it. There Mm. wasn't in the press. Um, during lockdown, which I think people might have had more time um, to actually read up and see about the human papillomavirus and all the other things that are affecting cancers. Um, so for sure, I think that was a, a silver lining, if you like, from what was going on. But of course, we've heard that there were people who um, have been de- been delaying going for um, help mm. and going for treatment and so on. And of course, that's extremely worrying. I have posted... Um, several times on our Facebook page about the fact that if people really did have concerns, particularly about smear testing, um, that the hospital, if they were worried, would have got in touch with people. But nevertheless, there are still people who will slip through the net and that's catastrophic for them. It certainly is. And the halting of routine treatments um, as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic could cause some huge repercussions um, in this sense. So it's so important that people are very much aware that they can now return to their hospitals, go for checkups and certainly should be encouraged to do so regardless of COVID-19 safety concerns. Um, While we are on the topic of sort of concern, worry and indeed mental well-being more broadly, Jeanette, I'm interested to understand just how it's been from a mental health perspective, managing yourself and your colleagues through this crisis, because I can imagine from that point of view, it's been a tremendously difficult time as well. It's been a very difficult time from a mental health um, point of view, and particularly for Steve and his clients um, who were uh, across the county, um, he's had to connect with them through Zoom or those who can't do Zoom. Mm. He's been, you know, keeping in touch by phone calls. And these people live alone and are dealing with cancer and, are, are, you know, coping um, really, really badly with the mental health aspect of isolation and, and fearing for their futures because, you know, some of them are still on chemotherapy and so on. And COVID would be an absolute disaster for any of them. So Steve particularly has has carried a heavy burden of dealing with and listening to all that they're they're coping with. And we've been lucky enough to get um, somebody in middle management from our great local hospital, the Royal Cornwall Hospital, who's actually joined the team and is actually supporting Steve, um, you know, with independent supervision sessions for him, which is so important to help him. Um, he's not really been aware, but he's really been suffering because of the virus and, um, you know, the fact that he's had, to, as he, he sees it, to let people down because they depend so much on coming to see him and they mm-hmm. um, gain so much from each other. I mean, you, you have never heard the laughter that comes out of, of the Cancer Rehab Centre, especially when all the prostate men are together. Their lives are a misery. You know, they really have some awful side effects, including incontinence, impotence, and all the dreadful things that go as a result of that of that particular illness. And uh, yet they're the ones that laugh the loudest and the longest because they're all together, they're all in the same boat, and they support each other. So this is something that's been missed tremendously, and they cannot wait to get back together. And in fact, Steve is just, He's, he's made it all um, COVID safe and he's just about to welcome a small group of people back again. So um, that's great news for them. Absolutely great news for them. Mm. Um, the staff who are working in our shop um, have all been through a great many stresses, mental health stresses particularly, wondering whether we're going to survive or not. 
Um, and they've all been on furlough, which has been such a great help to them. So they haven't had so, so many worries as perhaps people who haven't been on it. Um, but they still wondered whether we would survive and whether they'd have a job. And they do, all of them, love working for us. It's a, a unique and, and a, a small charity. It's not one that's run from somewhere else. It's something that I run. And I'm very keen and very involved with what they're doing and what they're feeling and, um, you know, how they're coping with everything and maintain regular contact with all the staff um, throughout, uh, you know, the lockdown period, of course. Um, so mental health-wise, some of them already have co are coping with mental health problems when they come to us. Um, so actually COVID and the fears around COVID and all the misinformation that sadly hits Facebook and places like that has affected them a great deal. So there's been quite a lot of work for me to do to encourage and support them. But happily, um, most of them are back now working and uh, and cheered up considerably and actually we're not doing too badly because during lockdown everybody's been clearing out their stuff mm. and um they as soon as they could they've been bringing it to us and they bring amazing things clothes and bedding and all sorts of things that we then sell and from that selling we actually then fund the cancer rehab program so, um, you know, out of a, a bad time, um, it's meant that people have given us much more stock than perhaps we would normally get, even though we do do very well from, uh, you know, people giving us stock. It's actually been a, a bumper time, if you like, at the moment, with me almost thinking, oh, goodness, we better um, stop some of it. But I don't want to do that because, mm. uh, you know, people have been really working hard at clearing out their homes. And <laughs> I don't want to lose that because that's what we depend on. We never get grants. I mean, we've just been turned down by the Duchy Health um, Grant, who are a health uh, charity in, in, in Cornwall. Um, and do you know what the reason was? Because they didn't expect us to survive COVID. And yeah, I can't tell you what that did to me and, and also to Steve, um, because we were looking for funding to help us take this um, exciting project around Cornwall and they've turned it down and um, it, you know it's, it's devastating absolutely devastating so one of the things that we do need more than anything is somebody who's got all the skills that I lack I mean I obviously must have leadership skills and I've mm. you know my life as a nurse and a social worker and a lecturer in health and social care I've got you know I'm, I'm interested in people and I hate the fact that people are dying of cancer when they shouldn't be dying of cancer. We should be looking out at the signs and symptoms very early on and helping people to know what they are. Um, you know, th th this is so, so important. Um, but um, we can't do all of this if we don't have um, the right people in place to lead us on. So I'm looking actually for a replacement Mrs. Pants, somebody with the mm. leadership skills, somebody who would love the challenge as I have enjoyed the challenge over the last 13 years. I mean, I'm 71 now, so I'm kind of slowing down a little bit, although it's a 24-7 job. Um, but I recognize my limitations, and I always have helped ask people for help. And most of the time, people have been very forthcoming. Um, but we do. We need somebody really great who really understands business and can get us moving and get us out there because nobody's providing this cancer rehab program we mm. trained in london st thomas's hospital um to be the first person in the southwest we were the first people actually delivering the program and over eight years it helped so many people transform from being cancer patients into becoming cancer survivors Mm. I always ask people when they're in leadership capacities that come onto the uh, the programme, uh, Jeanette, what actually inspires them in their role. And to me, it seems that in your case, it's very much the cause, helping people be aware of cancers, trying to alleviate that suffering. But also the fact that when you bring people going through the same difficulties together, it creates a real harmony and a real positive atmosphere. It certainly does. I'm not sure whether you're meaning the people who come to use the Cancer Rehab Centre or the staff. I mean, we do have staff members who have been through cancer themselves, but not all of them, but they love what we're doing. And I think because we're local and they can see the after effects and they can actually use our Cancer Rehab Centre themselves to get fit if they want to, that's, you know, obviously something we promote for them. Um, but I think they can see the end result. 
Whereas perhaps if you're um, belonging to a, a larger charity, you don't always see where the money's going and you don't always see the effects on, on uh, patients. Whereas here we do. And it, it, it just makes a huge difference. I mean, they're certainly all united in wanting to save lives. And we really do have an amazing group of staff, including we actually have a Syrian refugee who's with us who um, is just an amazing man, and he's actually a chef, and we did have for a while um, a, uh, a lovely cafe, which uh, he got us rave reviews on TripAdvisors and all the rest of it, but um, he couldn't work with us all the time, and um, uh, in the end, I had to let the cafe go, sadly, but he's now working with us in, in our shops and, and so on. And this is another aspect of the whole charity bit that I hadn't expected when I started, that we could actually help people in different areas, you know, particularly from mental health point of view, from mm. lovely uh, person who's a you know a refugee. Um, we do help homeless people. We've we've supported refugee, refugees and things like that, simply because we get donated so many things. And although charity law requires us to raise money for what we're intending to do, which is to raise awareness of of all the pancreatic cancers and support people with these with these cancers. But as a byproduct, we've been able to do a great deal more. And uh, we've ended up now, as I said earlier, with the most amazing team. And uh, it's a privilege to work with them. And it's a, it's a privilege to be able to make some kind of difference to people's lives, not only in the people who work with us. And some of them haven't had jobs before, so they've actually gained a great deal because of working with us. Um, but also in terms of the, um, the people that we're helping um, one of the things that I'm passionate about is that I cannot bear people to be ill with cancer when all it is is they just need to know what to look out for and when to go to their doctor. And all the doctors need to know when to refer them on to see a specialist so that they can make a decision quite quickly about whether they need to be seen urgently or not. And even within um, COVID restrictions, this has still happened. If somebody is really worrying about something and they've been to their GP and the GP's clued up to the pathways that would send them to the hospital, um, they've actually still been seen despite COVID and uh, the, the restrictions around it. So there are, you know, there's lives being saved throughout regardless, even though people might think that that's not been the case. Um, and that's, uh, you know, a, a great passion of mine. It actually physically hurts me if I hear another person who comes into the shop or whatever and says, oh, God, I've just been diagnosed with cancer. And then I talk with them and say, well, you know, I'm a 13-year survivor and look how lucky I am and look at what I'm doing. And, um, you know, I'm able to help a lot of people in that way. And I love that aspect of it. So there's much mm. that's come out of, of the charity that I really didn't expect. And I'm sincerely hoping that the work of the organisation can continue beyond this year in light of all that's going on at the moment. I understand you have some very, very big plans, including pledging funds to the Royal Cornwall Hospital to purchase key diagnostic equipment for cancers. Um, if we think about the sort of shorter term, though, over the next 12 to 18 months, we know that there's still going to be a significant economic impact when government support winds down. We know there's the new normal way of living and working that we have to adapt to as well. But just before we wrap things up Jeanette what is next for you and for Pants Cancers over that period of time and what is it that you're really hoping to achieve? The main thing is to take the cancer rehab program across Cornwall to reach all the people who would benefit from uh, having that uh, amazing facility in their area so that's what we need. We need funders, we need somebody who's quite happy to take um, us through that uh, knowing that we don't make a huge amount of money, that we wash our face, basically, and we don't ever have reserves or anything like that. I mean, I actually top the charity up from my pension occasionally. So we're not something that people would readily um, give to in the sense of, um, you know, big businesses will look at us and think, well, they're not doing very well. But actually, we've been going for, you know, 12 and a half, nearly 13 years now, and we're still delivering an amazing care. So I guess that's our main focus is, is to get funders interested in us 
uh, to get somebody who's good at getting funding for us because we've known charities around us get millions of pounds and they don't work half as hard as we do. So, we, you know, we, we really think we're primed for somebody to take on board, but we're not looking on paper like a good risk. But the passion that we have and the effect that we're having surely must interest somebody in what we want to do and even if we have to cut back on some shops because of covid which is a possibility though i hope it would never happen uh, we will still continue and it may be that i go back to how i started which is to sit in my little bedroom at home uh, the box room effectively and use the computer and tell the world about what we're up to and um just get people to know about the panseria cancers and what to look out for. So I would continue on that basis, but it would be such a pity not to be able to deliver this great programme to as many people as we possibly could. I have to say, uh, Jeanette, um, it's a shame we're just about out of time on the uh, the programme uh, today because we could discuss this issue long into the afternoon, I'm sure, if we had the time. But yeah. I've really, really enjoyed welcoming you onto the show with us. And I actually think it would be fantastic to catch up in a few months and have you back on the programme just to see how things are getting on, because it's such an important issue. And it would be fantastic just to see how things are catching up um, at the um, at the organisation itself and hopefully it's still alive, kicking and going strong. Absolutely. I would love to do that. That would be a great pleasure. And uh, Steve Winnan, who manages the Cancer Rehab, would love to talk with you. So um, I'm suggesting that he gets in touch and, and uh, perhaps has a podcast of his own, if, if that's possible. I'm sure we'd be more than willing to welcome him onto the uh, the programme and it would be fantastic to hear another voice as well. Um, in the meantime, um, however, Jeanette, until we do touch base with yourself and Steve in the future, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on as well, because we're certainly not quite out of the woods with the pandemic situation yet. No, we're not. We're not. But just by the way, the sun is shining in Falmouth in Cornwall. <laughs> you began by saying it was raining in London. It's got lovely weather. Oh, wonderful! <laughs> it's raining in the southeast, but hopefully we do get a little bit of the uh, the nice weather room as well. Yeah, we do. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Jeanette. I was speaking on today's programme to Jeanette Preston, a founder and voluntary CEO of Pants Cancers. Coming up next on the programme, I'll be welcoming England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst, onto the programme. Um, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals during his professional career for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City in the Football League. But most notably, he remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup competition after his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago. That is coming up next. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope may it last. Absolutely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, again, that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and goodness me, that's uh, nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player. Uh, tremendous goal scorer, and if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who was a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely, and I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter, and I just I really want the country to do well in in anything in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I want up wanting to bury it, and I'll be absolutely. I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, 
that England England have achieved or we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my uh, my achievement. It's about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three in one sense is, is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking um, at that moment. Obviously, a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually with my back to goal. I was actually looking at the referee. Uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms indicating quite clearly of course that the game was nearly finished so when I got to the edge of the box I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished I'm thinking if the game's nearly finished I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left but I'm thinking if it goes beyond the, beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, hand still Kowski the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss hit it and it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope, taking a punt, can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risks in a sense, because the game is unfinished, but that that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of making. It, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service. And we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts. And we're hanging out thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what, what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run up with enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital in uh, important in sense to have a, a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on. And, and also, into what was also for me fantastic, all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same you you union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. Uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you 
what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of a country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS. Fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, ro- the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that... I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coincidence and the fortunate in your life to be at the time when I was physically at my my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, uh, clever enough, technically good enough to, to be around to be a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, he is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alfred Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. Managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over different characters, strengths, players into a unit to play for uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can say I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic. Uh, people in my life in my in my football life and I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their um, of course their peak but just of course just but just as much as you can learn from of course coaches that do get the best out of players you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well because that experience can ultimately mold you as a person can't it oh yes I think it, yes I think it's Leadership's important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you, you can learn if you're central enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think well, like that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all sorts of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. 
uh, young people will make mistakes. But it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life uh, and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm, completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier, even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When in in those uh, medieval days, you there were you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You um, in our road in Greenway, that was called in Chelmsford. We that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac. It's not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and it's always a free ball to play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in. Uh, flying, you know, and making balsa wood gliders, and uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court, and uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street, and uh, we were actually. But that that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the. the the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, we, I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was had a big influence going back to that third goal in the World Cup in many years in the back garden and when we moved on to a, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot and so I at that time and even today it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed and I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton even Jack Charlton his brother didn't know which was his best foot he, he was fantastic but I was pretty pretty um, um Two-footed, and a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, Although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, 
wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about, as I, I kindly put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then, or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game, and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had the one first-class game for Essex, at, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got Norton and Norton on out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game from there. I filmed a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, v Lancashire up. Up in their territory, but that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games for those two or three years. Extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September, October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23, 24 games no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a mm. midfield player so um, quite changed dramatically um, that was 60, 62, 63 season the three years before the World Cup and when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, and not just sitting balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky. Very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves, who didn't play, was a world-class player, in, but in the squad. And Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue, was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banks, was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a 
and of course over the years hopefully that that has uh, come out that's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that a he saw when I was at West Ham and B obviously acquired me to play at Stoke City so I was I was initially first fairly surprised I think it <laughs> and certainly my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was, uh, which is, I can see in myself, I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world-class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Watkins saw that and if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is, uh, was... He is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across, the, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months, and I think it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham, it was a great time for the club. And I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the uh, the, the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi-final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was, uh, wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year, but I made very little contribution to that success the club had. So, um, yes, it's... The, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters. And my wife, and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a... I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was. And I enjoyed the experience. And I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. <laughs> New kitchen. <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's... I think the that kind of... Uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and revered sort of comes maybe maybe longer maybe in longer not some sort of immediately after you finish playing but in the long term when um, uh, and I always joke when people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend and I always jokingly say 
you only start being called a legend when you're over 70. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not not certainly, um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has, has natural characteristics. You can learn about management or management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find it, it, it's backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time, without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out, or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, even, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.